City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. One of the most significant stories of the past few years uh, has been about the battle between two New York politicians. Uh, This battle has been uh, something that we've heard a lot about recently. Uh, this is a battle that has been mudslinging and difficult. This is a battle for the ages. I'm talking, of course, about the political battle between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, two New York politicians who did not like each other and who drug each other's names through the mud in the press. I bring them up because the show Hamilton, the musical, shows us something really interesting as you watch it. The, the, sh- the play, the musical, whatever you want to call it, uh, chronicles the life of Alexander Hamilton, but in many ways, it's just as much about Aaron Burr. Those voices are the two voices that are in almost every song, and oftentimes, when it's performed, they're standing side by side, and you see two different types of people. On the one hand, you have Alexander Hamilton, who is loud and braggadocious. He is excitable and can get very short-tempered. In fact, one of the first stories you hear is the fact, and this is true, that when Alexander Hamilton came to America, he decided that he wanted to uh, go to Princeton, graduate early in two years. The, The registrar told him that that was not going to happen for him, that he was not that smart, and Alexander Hamilton's response was to punch the registrar of the college. Needless to say, Alexander Hamilton is not an alumnus of Princeton University. He was always loud. He would yell at George Washington, the George Washington. He would yell at him all the time. He was not exactly a quiet guy. He was very loud, and everybody could see his pride. In fact, in many ways, his pride was his downfall. When he was caught in an affair, his decision was, well, I'll just write a pamphlet and publish it and send it out to everybody in New York, and they'll know all the details of my affair, and everything will be fine. That did not work out for Alexander Hamilton. By contrast, there was Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr was far quieter. In fact, in the musical Hamilton, the refrain that Aaron Burr always says is, talk less, smile more. And Aaron Burr keeps getting ahead by being sneaky, by being somewhat treacherous, and by never letting people know what he's all about. But what's interesting is you look inside, as you take a moment to peel back, Aaron Burr was just as proud and prideful as Alexander Hamilton. The difference was, is that his was buried down below. He didn't want anybody else to see it. And yet, slowly but surely through his actions, you begin to see that he is proud. What's interesting for us, and why I bring this up, is that our culture has a unique relationship to the idea of pride. If I were to ask you, and I'm not going to do this, don't raise your hands, it would get awkward. Uh, Is pride a good thing or a bad thing? Most of you would kind of give this answer. Well, what do you mean by pride? Is it it okay to be proud of my accomplishments? We we sort of go, well, uh, pride is kind of good. You ought to be proud. But it's kind of bad. 
You don't want to be like a jerk, right? Think about this. How many people, how many entrepreneurs are motivated and driven by their pride? How many people are driven by their pride to get ahead in life? How many people use their pride as the fuel that gets them through the life? A lot of people. What do we do when somebody stands in the way of our goal? They are to be discarded. Don't stand in my way. I'm plowing ahead with what I want to do. And whatever we do, one of the worst things our culture says is that whatever we do, do not give someone else dirt on you. Don't be vulnerable. Don't let them know what's hard in your life. Don't let them know where your Achilles heel is. On the other hand, we all sort of have this idea that pride is bad. Think about, there's, there's two characters that will sort of sum this up for most people in this room that will cross the generational divide. Uh, on the one hand, there's Gordon Gecko. On the other hand, there is Jordan Belfort. Right? These are the two people that are sort of the same character for different generations. These are the characters from The Wolf of Wall Street and from Greed. These are the characters who are always going after whatever they want and they're very proud and our culture looks at them and they look at the movies about them and go, that's bad. That guy's a jerk. I don't like him. So what do we do? Should we be proud? Should we not be proud? Let's take a step back. What is pride? Ultimately, pride is self-sufficiency. I can do it on my own. Self-reliance. I don't need anybody else's help. It's self-aggrandeur. Nobody is better at this than I am. But if you look a little bit deeper under all of those things, I can do it on my own. I'm the best. I don't need anyone else. When you start to dig down a little bit deeper, what you find is that the root of pride is this idea. I'm equal with God. The root of pride is the idea that I am on a level playing field with God. This is exactly what was going on in the life of Saul and David. We're coming towards the end of Saul's life, but before we get there, there's a significant story that I want us to read. And so I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 22, and I'd ask that you would all stand, and let's listen for the way that Pride echoes into the lives of these men. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became a commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart. Go into the land of Judah. So David departed, and he went into the forest of Herod. 
heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah, under the tamarisk tree, on the height, with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you command, make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me, or discloses to me the son who has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitam. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitam, and all the father's house, the priests who were at Nob. All of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. He answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? In that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law? and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I have inquired about God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant, or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about them, Turn, and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they know that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, Your turn, you turn, and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, put to the sword. But one of these sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you will be in safekeeping. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This is kind of a dark story. As you walk through it, what you're, yeah, just, just a little bit. As you walk through it, what you begin to see is that Saul is continuing to deteriorate. All the good things we saw in Saul, which were not many, but the few good things we saw in him earlier in his life are now all but gone. Because he is sitting there, and the more and more 
he goes on, the more and more isolated he is. There's a contrast that's, that's set up. He is in public. He is up on a hilltop under a tree with all of his guards and everybody else surrounding him. And yet we have this strong feeling that Saul is isolated. That he's by himself. And he starts turning on his friends. He starts turning on them and saying, why isn't anyone telling me this? Why is it that you, my friends, and my family, my commanders, are not telling me anything about David? And the answer is, because they don't know. David and Jonathan made their covenant in private. They are with Saul, not out looking for David, and yet Saul is yelling at them saying, why won't you tell me where David is? And you can imagine the sort of stunned silence of the people. Because uh, I don't know where it is. Because I don't, don't know where David went. He starts turning on them. What we see is the way that pride is working itself out in the life of Saul. One of the things that pride does to us is it makes us more and more isolated, no matter how many people are around us. It makes us isolated because we think we're better than others. And so we can't spend as much time with those people because they're not as good as us. Or we get more and more isolated because the people spend time with start telling us that we're not good. Telling us that we haven't done everything right. And then we isolate ourselves from those people because we're not trying to hear that. Right? This is something that you and I do. What do you do when somebody says something hard and true to you? Do you stick around and say, yes sir, please, thank you, may I have another? How many people go, I can't wait to my annual employee review. It's the best time of the year. No, we don't like hearing hard things about ourselves. So what do we do? We surround ourselves with people who will just say nice things to us. We find a boss who really likes us and will only say nice things to us. That's the best kind of boss. Interesting, as David as Saul sits around, getting more and more isolated, separating himself from more and more people who will tell him the truth, who comes along? A spider. Doeg. Now, to you, you hear that name, Doeg the Edomite, and think that's weird. And you are correct. But when the people who read Samuel for the first time heard that name, saw that name written down, heard it spoken aloud, here's what they thought. Ooh, mm, 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 not a good fellow. Not a good guy. Edomite is almost always in the Old Testament a put-down. It's synonymous with sketchy. In fact, you remember, some of you may remember last year when we went to the book of Judges. There was a man named Ehud. He was also an Edomite, and he was left-handed. Also, a cue in the Bible that this person is sketchy. That is a, a verbal cue in the Bible. And Doeg seems to be the henchman. He seems to be the hatchetman for Saul. The guy that Saul has do all of his dirty work. And so he's yelling, he's yelling at all his commanders. These are his, his countrymen, his friends, his family. He's yelling at them, why won't anybody tell me anything about David? And who slithers up next to Saul? Doeg the Edomite. And he says, it just so happens, Saul, that a few days ago, I saw David. And when I saw him, he was talking 
to a priest. And that priest prayed for him. And that priest gave him bread. And that priest, Saul, I don't even want to tell you this. I'm, I'm embarrassed for this priest. I don't even want to tell you that that priest gave David the sword of Goliath. The snake. And so what does Saul do in his pride and isolation? He says, bring me that priest. And while you're at it, why don't you have his... Why don't you have him bring everybody who's related to him? I, I just want to see him. I just want to chat for a second. And so Saul calls him in and says, Why did you help David? And his priest says, Last I checked, David was a hero of our country, and your son-in-law, and a man of God. Why wouldn't I pray for somebody? Why wouldn't I help him out? Why wouldn't I lend a hand to the king's son-in-law? I thought you'd be happy with me, Saul. And Saul says, see, you helped him. Everybody, kill this guy and his family. And all of the Israelites sort of look around like, I think it's okay to kill a priest. Not sure... Not sure if that's okay, right? There's something, there's something about a priest that changes things. One of the things that's, that's pretty funny is whenever somebody finds out what I do, there is this split-second moment where they rewind the last five minutes of their conversation in their mind. and go, um, uh, what did I say? Did I swear too much? What's going on here? And there's that split-second, right? You can almost see that same split-second thing. The king is telling me to kill the priest. And all of the Israelites say, no, no I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I want to do that, Saul. That, that seems like, if nothing else, bad luck. Well, who's going to do it? The spider. The snake. Doeg. The Edomite. And he doesn't just kill all the priests that are there. He goes back to the town they came from and kills all the women. He kills all the children. He kills all the sheep and all the farm animals and everything. He obliterates this entire town. Under the orders of Saul. Now for us, we hear that, that genocide and there's a little bit of shock in all for us. But there's interesting is that God had said, look, there are these people, the Amalekites, and the Amalekites sacrifice their children. They kill their children in order to honor their God, and we want them out of the land of Israel. So here's what I want you to do, Saul. I want you to go to the Amalekites, and I want you to get rid of all of them, man, woman, child, and all of their animals. You know what Saul said when God said, look, these people are awful and we need to get them out of the land of Egypt? You know what Saul said? Nah. No, those sheep are worth a lot of money. Those people can be sold into slavery, and I can make a nice chunk of change for you, God, by doing this. So I'm not going to kill all of them. And now, when it comes time to a priest who said a prayer for David, what does Saul do? Every single one of them, man, woman, child, donkey, lamb, and the whole nine yards. What we're seeing working out in Saul 
is that Saul is slowly but surely more and more beginning to think that he is on a level level playing field with God. God says, Israel, march over here and kill these people. Saul says, no. God said, these are my priests who speak God's word for me. Saul says, I am the one who you must be loyal to. Don't worry about your loyalty to God. Worry about your loyalty to me, because even if you're a priest and you cross me, I'm going to kill everyone who's ever met you. And we see the pride welling up more and more and more in Saul. Now at this point it would be easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, Saul's bad. I'm glad I'm not like Saul. I'm glad Saul's the bad guy and I have nothing in common with Saul. Hold on. Let's talk about that for a second. Because I think that we have more in common with Saul than we care to admit. Let me make a few cases for that. How much do you make other people come to you? How much do you set the terms of your relationships? If you want to talk to me, I'll be here. You should come over to my house. I'm not going to come over to your house. For how many of you are relationships a one-way street? Where you set and dictate all the terms. And if someone wants to be friends with you, they've got to do it your way. Well, what about this? Maybe you have a more quiet pride like you remember. How many of you think that you don't need help? When's the last time you asked for and I don't mean like help moving the couch out of your house. I mean genuine life help. When's the last time you said, I cannot live my life and make my decisions on my own. I need someone else to help me. When's the last time your reputation took a hit? Someone said something bad about you. Something you wanted to do didn't go the way you how did you feel? That feeling? That feeling when your reputation takes a hit that you get? The word for that feeling is pride. How about this? When's the last time that you suggested something? Maybe it's a new idea for how to handle something at work. Maybe it's a new idea for your home. Whatever it is, you suggested something, and the other person, the company, your boss said, nah, we're going to go with somebody else's. you have a problem with somebody else and one of your friends starts hanging out with that somebody else, how do you feel? Do you say, great, friends are friends, whatever, this is great. Or do you quietly sabotage that relationship? Here's one that's probably more common for us to Why can't everybody just be the world and a good person at wouldn't the world be a much better place if everybody was just good like me? And the more and more we think like this, the more and more we think that I'm better than everyone else. My ideas are the ones that should really be taken seriously. The more and more I go inward and think 
that everybody else's problem is they're not as good as me. What we're doing is we're elevating ourselves to the place of God. But even more so, we're bringing God down to us. See, God is holy. And He will not share His glory with anyone else, even us, even in our own hearts. And so what we do is we try to drag God down to our level so I feel like I have a reason to be proud. Point in case, I do this too. In fact, I did this last week in my sermon. I was given an example, and I was talking about the fact that I wish more people would come to the church. Except I didn't say more people would come to the church, or this church. I said my church. Well, I immediately realized my mistake in saying that, it was a window into my heart. Because at the end of the day, here's the way pride works out in my life. I think that everything depends on me. And that I'm the one who's got to do this. And at last I checked, God wasn't changing the kegs out at this church. I was. And I think that that is what matters. And that, you know what? I should be the one who can cause growth. I. Me. My. These are all symptoms of pride. These are all ways that I begin to elevate myself to God. The way that I begin to take and say, you know what? The blessings and grace of God are a reward that I can earn. See, if I do enough things, God will make this church grow. If I do enough things, if I am morally good enough, God will give me the things that I want. I can achieve God's blessing through hard work. What that does is that says that I can be God. I just work hard Thankfully, Saul is not the only character in the story. Because we see a huge contrast. David shows us humility. As much as Saul is showing us what pride looks like, David is showing us the other side of the coin. The first way we see it is, who is David hanging out with? Who are the 400 people that David has rallied around his side? It's people who are in debt. People who have been kicked out of their homes. He is hanging out with the riffraff. The marginalized. The people who society says are not the kind of people you want to hang out with. The kind of people where you would avoid putting your kids in school. Well, we can't go to that school. David is hanging out with the riffraff. And not only that, he's doing thankless jobs. He is going to a foreign nation to provide a place for his parents to stay while all of this happens. That's a thankless job. And not only that, he willingly takes a hit to his reputation to serve others. Did you catch what happened at the end? One of the priests of the whole town that was murdered escapes. And he comes to David. And he said, David, I don't know what to do. Saul killed Everybody. And David, what David says, David would have been right to say, that's because Saul is awful, and God has abandoned him, and that's why you should follow my cause. David had, 
David would have been absolutely correct in saying that. But what does David say? You know, that day that I saw Doeg the Edomite down the street, and I knew he saw me, I should have done something about that. And because I didn't, this tragedy has happened. I am so sorry. David willingly took a hit to his reputation in order to serve others. You see, that's, that's what humility really looks like. Are you willing to look bad so that you can serve others? Are you willing to lose social status to love and serve the marginalized. The riffraff. The people that of all people are not the ones that deserve. You see, that, that's what David was. David took in a refugee and took a hit to his reputation in order to do it. David shows us what humility is, but not only that, he shows us who Jesus is. Because what David is doing is taking the undeserved. Do those debtors, do those people who are the riffraff of Israel, who are described as people with an axe to grind, and people who don't have a place to live, does David take these people in because they deserve to be taken in? No, quite the opposite. They don't deserve And yet he takes them in. And while David just takes the blame for Saul's savagery, Jesus takes the punishment, blame, and guilt of our sin on him on the cross. You see, David is just a shadow of what the brilliant light of Jesus is. You and I are all undeserving. You see, our pride tells us that we're mostly undeserving. That I'm mostly undeserving of God's love. Jesus says, no, you are absolutely undeserving. And even now, for some of you when I say that, you bristle against that a little bit. Uh Uh-uh. I totally did my CDR journal every day this week. Wait, no. Jesus, look at my checkbook. I'm giving. Uh Uh-uh. Wait a minute. Jesus. up a lot in other ways, but but I've got that going for me. Jesus, I'm really self-disciplined. I know that I've got a lot wrong, but there is that one thing. No, no. You are wholly undeserving of the love of God. But that is what makes it beautiful. Is that you can't deserve it. You can't earn it. And Jesus says, I know that you don't deserve it. Therefore, I'm going to give it to you freely as a gift and a blessing that you cannot earn and that you can never pay back. The beauty of the gospel is that we are the riffraff, who Jesus takes to himself and makes us into a new people. It's interesting that these 400 men, these 400 riffraff people that are hanging out with David will become the seed of the people of Israel. They will become the forerunners of the restoration of God's people. Not because they deserve it. And not because they can ever pay it back. 
And so for all of us who have pride wrapped around our hearts, here's the good news, that we can be free. That your life, your thoughts do not have to be dominated by your pride. That your friendships don't have to be driven by your pride and self-service. How? First of all, by seeing that God is holy and we are not. We have got to stop dragging God down to our level. We've got to stop saying, God is kind of like us. No, God is absolutely holy and other, and in many ways foreign to us as humans, because holiness is greater and bigger than we can imagine. When we begin to see Him as holy, we can begin to admit that we are genuinely unholy. That we don't have it together. That we are sinners who do not deserve the love of God. Even a little bit. When we admit that, the freedom begins to come in. I don't have anything to be proud about. I don't have anything to boast in. When I stand from that position and look at the grace of Jesus, I can see it as a blessing and a gift. Not as a reward. Not as something I can earn. Not as something that I have to fight to keep, but rather something that Jesus has freely won for me with his death and resurrection, and something he freely calls me to live into. And when this is our idea, when we begin to understand that God is holy and we are not, that grace is a gift and not a reward, it begins to change us. One of the ways that it changes us is we become willing to be vulnerable with others. You want to know what the quickest antidote to pride is? Tell someone else the dirt in your life. You want to know how to not be proud? Go ahead and share the secrets that you don't want to tell anybody with somebody else. Be vulnerable. The only way that you will ever be safe and comfortable enough to be vulnerable is if you believe that God is holy and that grace is a gift, not a reward. And that God's blessings are freely given to you. When you believe the gospel, it gives you the freedom to begin to be vulnerable. Which is terrifying for most of us. But not only does it change us internally, but it changes us externally as well. When you begin to realize how the gospel attacks our pride. In fact, the Bible says that God makes war against the proud. Which, if you want to go ahead and make war with God, go ahead, knock yourself out. I don't think you're going to win. But keep being proud, because God says he's going to make war against you. Guess what? God will not share his glory with anyone, even you, in your own heart. But when we begin to realize the gospel, when we begin to realize that God is holy and we are not, that grace is a gift, not a reward, not only does it create vulnerability, does it create the opportunity for true community-based vulnerability, but it also pushes us outward in mission and love for those who are on the margins of our city. And the reason it does is because we no longer approach them as the proud people who have the answers. We begin to sympathize and empathize with them because we realize that we are that we are in the same boat. That we are just as needy for the grace of Jesus as they are. And all of a sudden, the way that we love others changes. The kind of people we are attracted to changes. The kind of people who we see with new eyes 
changes. Because God begins to change our hearts. He begins to root out pride that drives us so often and replace it with the truth, goodness, and 